Welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims Podcast. Konnichiwa. It's like my Drogheda infused Japanese. Very slick. Yeah, thanks. So anyone who follows the podcast might know I was away on holiday. It's a family holiday. It was in Japan. And I was lucky enough to meet up with Sean Lally. He is a Mancunian. He lives in London, but it's possibly going to end up in New Zealand. And he was over there trying it on for size. He was on his way back home to England at the same time that I was in Japan. And by coincidence, we were both in Tokyo on the same night. So we jumped at the chance of having our lost in translation moment. Brilliant. So uh, this, is a gr- this is a great chat coming up. And um, really, he's, he's very articulate about the idea that, um, and this is a really interesting thing you get into about not just wanting to learn the instrument, but wanting to learn what he talks about as being traditional Irish music. So it's, it's great. Like, that category is yeah. amazing. And Sean's been... Well, Sean became my f- a friend on Facebook when we started this project, and he has been so instrumental in my learning, in particularly in the in the in the pipes. He sent me that documentary I've mentioned a few times now. He sent me another great one. Was about this the TG Four documentary about traveling pipers? It was, yeah. and just yeah. yesterday, Sean shared with me another resource, which maybe this thing is known everywhere, but I got lost in the rabbit hole yesterday. It's a thing called um, TuneSearch.org. Have you heard of it? Nope. Oh man, so it's it's a wiki of essentially nearly every Irish, English and North American instrumental tune from the last 300 years or so. And you pick a tune, go in, type it in, search it, and you'll find out some of the history behind it, the story behind it. It is a goldmine if you're ready to go on one of those deep dives into those tunes you, you think you know. Right, and um, will you be linking to that in the show notes? No, keeping it for myself. Right. Absolutely, good, good that, that and everything else that myself and Sean mentioned. So any, I'll go back through our um, our messages and, and anything that he sent me, I'll put it in there because he has so many great resources. Yeah. And he actually sent me some great photographs of the tunnels that he mentioned. Um, he, got, he gave me some photographs of that. So I'm trying to put some pictures and get a bit of stuff up on Instagram. So... Blarney Pilgrims podcast on Instagram. If you're that way inclined, you'll get some nice little photos and this kind of stuff. Yeah, and thanks to everybody who's gone to patreon.com forward slash Blarney Pilgrims uh, over the last week since we um, hit you up last week about um, helping to increase the percentage of listeners who are actually um, helping to contribute to the funding the cost of the project. So patreon.com forward slash Blarney Pilgrims. Um, it's $2 an episode. It's $4 if you fancy... Um, go on that little bit extra and if you're feeling super flush this week and you've had a win on the GG's uh, you can hit you can hit us up for a 10 spot yeah and I, I'm going to repeat it again because I think it's worth repeating for that contribution no matter what level you go in at everyone gets the same thing but you're getting at least an hour of top quality chat you're getting some tunes from some of the best players out there at the minute you're contributing to the archiving of the players of today which as I said last week I think that's the most important part of it. And the icing is, you know what? You get to do a nice thing for other people. A lot of people just can't afford to do it. We understand that. I listen to podcasts that I don't subscribe to because, you know, your pocket's only so deep. So that's the reason why you should do it. If you can, please do. Head over to patreon.com forward slash Balani Pilgrims. As usual, the links will be in the show description, in our Facebook posts, and anywhere else that we're popping up. Brilliant. Now here is Sean Lally. Enjoy. I think we got it.
Sean Lally, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan. And uh, yeah, it's wonderful to be here with you in Tokyo, of all places. Isn't it strange? Look, we're going to get into that. But first, I want to find out the tune you just played for us. What, what was that? Well, there's a, a beautiful song called The May Morning Dew and um, very popular with pipers to play the slow air of that. Uh, do you know this song at all? No. Okay, well, I first heard that slow air played by Mick O'Brien, who's one of the one of many incredible living pipers that we're, we're fortunate to have from Dublin. And Mick has an album called The May Morning Dew, which um, if you've not got it, guys listening to it, I download it or buy it. And Mick talks about this um, slow air being very important to him because he remembers his mother singing it at the kitchen sink, you know, all the time. I think it was her favourite song. And the set of pipes I'm playing is called a half set. We'll go into technical stuff later. But I don't have the three regulators, the tenor bass and um, baritone keyed, um, you know, tubes that come out of the pipe that give you the chordal accompaniment that very skilled players can achieve. And Mick is a master at that in creating emotion. And the pipes are quite an emotive instrument, right? So Mick plays this tune. You don't have to be into pipes. You don't have to be into traditional music. It's, it's beautiful and it's moving and it's powerful. And the song, The May Morning Dew, um, sung by all the big singers from Ireland. And my favorite version is by Dolores Keane. And she sings it. And it's so funny because the first line, it's something like, how wonderful or how joyful in winter to sit by the fire. Listen to that. I'm getting the lyrics wrong now. But um, this, the narrator's talking about sitting in front of the hearth and the joy at hearing the barking and wailing of the dogs. Yeah. And in the modern world, you kind of think, what's that about? Why is that joyful? That's annoying. Mm-hmm. Dogs barking, shut up. <laughs> you know. But what it is, it's, a, it's an elderly person looking back upon their life. And the reason it's joyful is they remember their brothers, her, you know, the, the narrator's brothers going out hunting in, in the May morning dew. Yeah. And it's an incredible song because it's bittersweet. It's the bittersweet um, love of, of age. You know, all the sweet neighbors that are dead and gone and the house I was born in is but a stone on a stone. So it's a really powerful song about loss, you see. So I think if you play that tune when you know the lyrics of the song, you can put your own feelings into it. Can you, can you recall what the storyline is? Well, the storyline, as I say, it's someone looking back on their life and um, all the sweet neighbours who are now dead and gone, yeah. all the kind neighbours that are dead and gone. Mm-hmm. So it's someone lamenting their own personal loved ones, their own house, you know, is not there, their community. And certainly, you know, from my... I, I try to read and watch as much as possible about Irish history and traditional music and the, the history of the music. And so many people talk about the old Irish rural ways. And in fact, I was speaking to Brian Howard, who made my pipes earlier, and we were talking about Tommy Carney, a friend of his, a mentor of his, and he said Tommy was such a gentleman. He said every woman you'd speak to would say that. And in fact, that's a term that's repeated again and again and again about traditional musicians and pipers. And I think that represents this way of life that's been lost in the hyper-speedy capitalist world we inhabit. So is that, is that the reason you, you pull that particular tune out? Well, I'll be perfectly honest, it's a good one to get started on the pipes uh, when you sit down because you, 
the, the pipe's reeds are all made of natural cane, and they react to temperature and humidity and even altitude. Mm -hmm. And I've just come from summer in New Zealand, where we spent a few weeks on the road, to winter in Japan, and we're in this weird air-conditioned, stifly hotel, so the reeds are kind of going, what, what, what the F, man, what's going on? You know, we're not happy about this. So we've just, I've just been struggling a bit to try and make the reeds work. That's part of the joy of piping. So that tune is a good starting tune for the pipes. And because it's a slow air, it's not like I'm having to really get all the technical stuff out. So I can put a lot of emotion in, and that's I want to hook people in with a shared experience. I think that's what music is. You know, I'm not Tola Custy, I'm not Liz Carroll. I'm a, an enthusiast who's learning about the Irish musical tradition and who's learning the Ellen Pipes. Mm -hmm. That's me. If you're listening, I, that's I'm just like you. You know, and you know, I'll never be able to amaze people with my technical playing, but if I can touch people, then all, and we can touch each other in terms of playing music together. That's what it's all about. It's funny you should mention that, because today when we're recording this, Tola's interview went out, and Tola actually speaks about himself and his father having that philosophy of, you know what, I'm, he, his father's philosophy was, I'm not going to teach you to be a great. I'll, I'll be able to teach you to be able to go out there and play. If you want to be one of the masters, by all means, do that. But there is, it, it's to be celebrated to just to be a player, to be an enthusiast, to just be in the music. And I, I love that. That's, um, before we go on to, I, I should mention, so my relationship with Sean goes back uh, with, with, within the podcast and Sean's been side messaging me about, um, about pipes. So I, any kind of repeat listeners will know that I've, my, my love for the pipes is growing over the last few months, and Sean's actually been the one who's been guiding me to a, to a great extent. So I, I do have some questions just on what you were speaking about before with the reeds and the temperature that we're sitting in right now. With the set you have in front of you, how many reeds are in that? Is it three, five? This has got four reeds. So the main star of the show is the chanter. So the chanter is what plays the melody. And it's most like uh, a bar Baroque oboe, apparently, in terms of if you want to compare it to other instruments. Yeah. It's not like a Highland bagpipe. It's not like a Breton binu. Um, it, it's a kind of oboe with, attached to a bag, so it, it blows these two full octaves. It's called a double reed, just two bits of reed together, you know, like two bits of grass you'd blow. And then the three drones I've got, the tenor, baritone, and bass drone, have got single reeds, which are circles with a, like a lip cut in basically. And then I've got another two holes for the bass and, um, sorry, the um, tenor and baritone regulator. And the bass regulator, you've got to drill into the stock to put that on. Yeah. And, you know, many, many pipers will have these regulators on their pipes and they can't play them. And it's about three grand to get the ro those regulators on sterling. Yeah. You know, so I'm, a, I'm, as I say, I'm learning the tradition. I'm learning the chanter. So I'm quite a way off that at the moment, yeah. if ever. I asked him about the reeds because I thought it was particularly interesting when you picked that slow air. And it was a, a song that, uh, that the slow air is a song, I should say. And that documentary, which you sent to me on the TG4, was the um, Pripyllan documentary. And I've been trying to, for myself, unpick what it is I love about the pipes. 
And when I was speaking with Jack a couple of weeks ago, I, th- I thought maybe it's something to do with that very, very deep analog sound. And in between then and now, I kind of thought, you know what, for time I dabbled in kind of chip tune and kind of 8-bit kind of techno stuff as well. And I said, you know what, it actually is a little bit in that. And it was only this week when you sent me that documentary that they mentioned the amount of reads. It was five, well, I think they were, the set they were looking at had five sets seven. or five reads. Seven reads, yeah. Or seven, was it? Wow, okay. And they illustrated then towards the end why they think that the pipes and vocals work so well together. And I think for you to come and play a slow air, I was thinking about it the whole time, and it absolutely does. It, it, it is the harmonies that work within... A vocal harmony, to me it sounds like it's the same thing happening there. Am I right? Am I, is that come on, barking, up the wrong th- barking up the wrong tree? Well, it rings true for me, and certainly, like I say, when you get the regulators going with the slow tunes, you know, you've got another three reads, and it's the harmonics and the overtones. You know, it's all of these, the, th- the crazy stuff the sound wave's doing. And it's funny, um, cause I lived for a long time in a little town called Totnes, in South Devon, and it's a real new agey kind of place. And I say that in a good way as well as a bad way. There's, you know, a lot of spiritual seekers, a lot of interesting people, and a lot of good, amazing stuff coming out of there. Um, the Global Transition Towns movement started in Totnes. Right. And that's, you go to Auckland now, and there's Transition Towns Auckland and stuff. And it's about transitioning to a post-oil economy in a, a healthy way, you know. Well, I was going to ask you, yes, I, I don't know what that is, but what is that? Well, essentially, it's, it, it was a, a movement to, to say, well, at some point, the oil is going to run out. At some point, this economy based upon, you know, the oil is going to have to change. Like an electric car, you've got seven gallons of oil per tire. Yeah. You, you can't just replace like for like. So it's about learning the skills and developing the technologies um, now or 10 years ago, 20 years ago yeah. at the time. So this is something that's inspired people all around the world in, in many walks of life. And it, it started in this little town, Totnes. So lots of spiritual teachers go there. So you get gurus from India, you get Buddhist monks from Sri Lanka, and you get lots of South American shamans and stuff that come over yeah. <laughs> and do all these crazy medicine rituals. And I remember when I very first got the pipes and this South American shaman was in Totnes, like they are, you know, hanging out, drinking coffee, doing rituals. And Brian, I can't remember his surname, but the the guy who got me started learning the pipes, not Brian Howard who made them, he was a bit of a head and he, he, he was hanging out with this shaman and he played him the pipes. And the shaman said, well, how old is that? You know, that's coming straight from another world. And Brian said, well... 18th century and the shaman was like no way he goes you must have just reinvented that you've rediscovered that sound because that's an ancient sound Mm -hmm. and you know we talked earlier about you know myself you know from England playing the Ellen Pipes and there's people from Japan that play the Ellen Pipes and there's the Benavista Pipers Club in Cuba you know and there's something about traditional Irish music and the Ellen Pipes I think especially that touches people so deeply and affects them in a visceral way. And it certainly did me, you know, with this instrument. You must have a memory of when you first heard the pipes then. Uh, yeah, I think like a lot of people, I didn't know what I was hearing. You know, it's like you listen to like, the Planksty and the Body Band and these great bands, and you, you don't know it's the Yellow Pipes in there. It's just, wow, it's just great music. So for myself... Um, I got in traditional Irish music growing up in Manchester, that's where I'm from, and 
there's a big Irish community there. And I, my first instrument was a drum kit. I used to play in heavy metal bands and thrash metal bands, all that kind of stuff. Very. Tell me more. <laughs> well, actually, I think it's a really similar energy. You know, if you listen... Go on, I have to ask, how, how so? Well, it's not everyone's going to agree with this, and certainly Terry Moylan uh, would be very angry about it. He, he, he slapped someone down online because someone said their playing had a lot of rock and roll in. And he's like, no! No, it's traditional Irish music. There's no rock and roll. And someone was talking about the energy and the, you know, the fucking visceral feeling of it. Not that they were, you know, doing something different. Yeah. But for myself, listening to, say, Donald Lunny's first solo album, you know, he did that mini album. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tolka Polka, that um, polka that he wrote. That's like Slayer. That's like early Metallica. It's just got this raw, exciting, you know wild music to it and I think all music does right you listen to any music from around the world when it's played with passion and um, you know the Japanese are pretty wild people underneath all the control mm-hmm. they're really wild you know so your uh, your foray into rock and roll heavy metal playing drums what that's teenage into 20s or yeah, yeah. sort of where did the pipes sneak in well funnily enough um I just heard more and more traditional music. So uh, there was a band called Toss the Feathers that you know used to be around Manchester all the time. Um, later found out that was Michael McGoldrick and you know John Joe Kelly was playing around Manchester at that time. And I was not in that world at all. But I, I had been exposed to it. The first gig I ever played a heavy metal gig in, the first venue was um, St. Brendan's Irish Centre in Old Trafford. That was my first gig when I was about 16, playing there, or a bit younger maybe. And I just started to see more of this music live when I was drunk. And, wow, this is great. You know, really great. And I remember being in Edale, which is a very beautiful, um, tiny little village in the countryside in between Manchester and Sheffield. And it's like a big green bowl, if you imagine it. And in fact, they do a folk train there, they call it. And it's like a session on a train. It goes from Manchester out to Weedale and back. Yeah, it's right. quite, you see it on YouTube, type yeah. in folk train Manchester or session train, yeah? Um, and I was there as I was a student and I was volunteering on a camp for people recovering from mental illness. And it was run by these hippies um, from Manchester. And it was pretty wild. It wasn't particularly wasn't like being in a psychiatric ward. You know, I'd done voluntary work in a psychiatric ward. It was very different. It was kind of like, put the axe down, you know, shake hands. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't a common occurrence that happened once, you know. <laughs> and that was nothing to do with the mental illness. It was just people falling out. But it was just, yeah, it was just, we had this far out time out, you know, drinking and walking under the stars. And we, we did this big, long walk um, in the hills and came into this little pub. And there was this band, you know, traditional Irish musicians knocking out these tunes. And it was just something about that moment with those people and that music. And I was like, this is actually the greatest music in the world. It's like, I just remember that night, I must have been maybe 1920. I was like, this is it now. I want to learn this music. And I, yeah, I want to do this music. Was it a band or was it a session? Do you remember? It was a gig. Yeah, it was a gig. So they were doing like Victor Jara songs and all sorts of like rebel songs, I guess, from all around the world and the tunes. So then what was your, um, what was your journey? You, you've, you've been moved by these guys, the pipe player. 
Oh, they didn't have a piper. Oh, they didn't. So it was just the music itself. Mm, that, was, that was the music, and I think that's the thing: is I play Ireland pipes. Or I'm learning to play the Ireland pipes, but like I said, I'm learning Irish traditional music, mm-hmm. and that's really important, you know. Um, sometimes, you know, someone will say, "Ah, oh, I know so and so plays the great Highland pipes or the bagpipes," as people tend to say, or so and so plays the Scandinavian pipes, and it's like, well, that's interesting. And I'd probably like to listen to it, but I've got nothing in common with them mm-hmm. at all, apart from the fact we squeeze a bag. Yeah. You know, I've got more in common with someone who plays Irish, you know, concertina or the box or something, because it's the tradition. So I guess I was hooked by the tradition. And shortly after, I, um, you know, I just bought a camper van and lived in the camper van and was traveling around. And I thought, well, I can't take my drum kit. The van's too small. And I don't really want to do that anymore. I don't want to do that whole band practice and yada, 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 you know. So I just got myself a baron. And that's what I started, you know, is getting a baron and go to sessions and practicing and getting into that. And I ended up living in Cornwall, where there's quite a lot of Irish amongst other, lots of Breton and, uh, funnily enough, some Cornish traditional music. And just doing loads and loads of playing, just masses of playing and going over to Ireland and playing Bowen in Ireland. And what really struck me is how incredibly welcoming the Irish people were and the music tradition was to me at the time as this dreadlocked English hippie yeah. with a Bowen, which I later learned was like, oh, there's been Bowen <laughs> players here, you know. But it, yeah, I was there for three weeks. So I don't think I bought a pint of beer, you know, just hitchhiking yeah. around Ireland. Um, you know, staying in all sorts of hippie communes out in West Cork and places like Asterix and Obelix villages, really, that people yeah. had built out there and go to places, you know, go Galway and the sessions out in Clare and stuff. And you know what? I didn't see a piper once. But in that, that was 1998. I didn't see a single piper for, for weeks and weeks in Ireland. So I guess they've got a mystique. Yeah. They have got a mystique. And the first time I saw pipes was before then, it was in Cornwall. And there was a band called Scatter the Mud, who were from Foy in Cornwall. And they were, you know, if you have been sniffy, a fairly middle-of-the-road traditional band. You know, they weren't out of this world, but they were good. Yeah. And they'd play music, and everyone would dance, and, you know, that was that, really. And they all played in local sessions, and they had a piper. And I remember we were all dancing away to this band, and I said to my mate, Chris, what's that guy playing? Looks a bit like a whistle, but there's a bag, and he's yeah. like, I don't know. You know, we had no idea, so I chatted to the piper, you know, at the end of it and gradually started to build an understanding of what's going on. You said, just before we got into that tiny bit, you said you were interested in learning Irish music. Mm-hmm. I find that fascinating, because obviously that's what I'm trying to do at the moment, is learn Irish music. It's not about a particular instrument. It's trying to... So you're living in Cornwall... It's mid-90s. The internet is not there, which is how my cheat sheet mm. is the internet. How, do you, how did you do it? Like, What was your approach? Or were you even aware that that's what you were... Were you aware at that age that that was the quest you were on? Yeah, I think so, because you just feel it, don't you? You know, and Brian Howard, who made my pipes, you know, he'd said to me, and it's always stuck with me. He said, look, Sean, so many people, this is obviously outside of Ireland, he's talking about Brits and, and others, they're learning to play Irish tunes, but they're not learning to play Irish traditional music. 
And it's a completely different thing. And it's something I see again and again and again when children are being taught outside of the Irish tradition, you know. And we're very, very lucky in Britain, as in we've got lots of strong cultist branches that are teaching children in a wonderful way and a really high standard. And uh, But I do see lots of really, really poor teaching of children. And I saw some of it recently on my trip to New Zealand. You know, we were at a festival and my son was there with his fiddle and he's lucky enough to have a great fiddle teacher in, in Devon where we live. And they said, they said we're going to have a kids' Cayley band. So, okay, great. You've got a week. Teach them a few tunes. Yeah. Well, they started the kids' Cayley band and they expected them to learn five tunes in 24 hours then play a Cayley. Well, I couldn't learn five tunes in 24 hours. It, it's just ridiculous. So, first of all, unless that child is, you know, a genius, Frankie Gavin-type player they're not going to pick it up by ear that quickly. So then you're expecting them to sight read. And I saw that at Sidmouth Folk Festival as well in England. It's like that kid's Cayley band. Here's the sheet music, sight read it, so we can have a nice Cayley. Mm-hmm. And to me, well, you know, what have Cayley's got to do with traditional music anyway? But that's another story, and we can talk about the Gaelic League and Cayleys and yada yada, because, of course, many of the greatest musicians that came out of the 20th century were in Cayley bands. So I don't want to knock it, but, you know, it, it is a side... It's a whole, it's a whole river, isn't it? Traditional music, mm-hmm. or many rivers, but I think that's the biggest mistake, and you see it again, or hear it again and again in sessions, is people playing tunes like they're in the session.org, and that's not the music. Mm. You know, I'm not saying everyone has to play a highly ornamented style because there isn't one style that's right, but it's the language, isn't it? You know, like, we're here in Japan and you listen to the music of the language. Uh, Every country you go to, it's like the traditional music, just like the language of that country, it's a way of seeing the world and expressing how you see the world. And I don't think, probably, unless you grow up with the Irish tradition, you're ever going to really get it, I don't think. I might be wrong there. But at least have a go Mm. to understand it at least try and get under the skin of what's going on. And it isn't um, what a lot of people are doing. But it, it's such a... It, because there's no roadmap to it, right? So there's, there is the academic road. There is the... Um, let, let's call it just a more folk way where people are... They come up in a family that's full of musicians. They... Um, they might got a cultist and they've kind of got a um, live in a neighborhood so they're learning this stuff through osmosis but there's still a huge swathe of us people on the on the exterior who don't have a way in we we don't possess enough knowledge to go down the economic route we're we're too too newbie and we don't we're not steeped in it so is that the thing that needs to happen I suppose in some sense that's really well from my point of view was one of the reasons to start doing this podcast was to give a, a slightly different angle in. So I'm not coming, I'm not talking to you like I know it, everything there is to know about it. I'm trying to learn with, with a lot of these people, like someone yourself, I'm learning with you. And so at a time, I might get to, to sit with a, uh, a great player who can impart a bit of knowledge. But it's, I don't know, there seems to be a third avenue that needs to exist because I, 
I don't know where to go. Like, yes, there's plenty of resources out there, but it's, it's overwhelming. Did you find did, So when you were living in Ireland and playing, because you're obviously, I keep on going back to being young. And maybe it's a reflection on how immature I was. But when you're trying to learn the music, at what stage did you start to feel like it was it was starting to entering you, enter you? Well, I know the Barons much maligned, mm. maybe misunderstood. But you know, I loved the Baron, and you know, I really enjoyed playing it, and I loved being at a session with a great Baron player, just like I love playing music with a great bazooki player, great guitarist. I like playing music with any great musician because they just bring bring something alive and they don't have to be technically amazing but really good baron player brings so much and you know i remember being at a session an all-night session in the irish club in galway one night um which means the gaelic speaking club you know and it was a bit of a funny story because i was just wandering around galway which is such a cool party city um looking for people to busk with you know because i was skint and there was a couple of lads playing flute Irish lad and a Breton lad. I said, can I join you? And they were like, yeah, which is pretty generous, really. That bloody Baron player, I thought, but oh, yeah, great. And we were, it's 1998, this trip, and it was the Euro football going on, mm-hmm. you know, European Championships, and Ireland were playing. And there was a pub showing the football, packed full of people, right? So this fr- Frankie, this flute player, he said to me, you know, Sean, if they win, we're going to make fucking shitloads of money. <laughs> But if they lose, they're going to murder us. Yeah. So you imagine we're outside the pub playing tunes, and I'm listening. Are they cheering? Are they, you know, and they won. And we made lots of money. And we went to this session in the Galway Irish Club. And yeah, I'll, I'll come on to the, sorry, I'll come on to answering the question. But it, it was just that, that night answers the question, right? And I, again, here I am, sort of, you know, white hippie guy, English guy walking in with my parent to the, the Gaelic speaking club with the session. I mean, imagine the pure drop. And the barman just look, looks at me and starts speaking in, in Irish. And I said, sorry, mate, I'm English. I don't speak a word. He goes, no problem, it's a pint. You know, just completely welcoming, completely fine. Yeah. Okay, you're not one of us, fine. And it was quite a small session. There's the two flute players. There was a girl who played box. And it was fascinating for me to see because she was with her mentor. And there was this old gentleman with her who'd obviously was her teacher, and he didn't have his box with him. He was just there to kind of let her go. He's like, right, she's good enough now. Uh-huh. And it was incredible, because he was so proud, and occasionally they talk, and this and that. But it was like, wow, there's the living tradition. There it is. You know, obviously, this box player may well have had other teachers, and I'm sure many peers, but it was this beautiful, like in England, in a pub, you often want to see some old fella and a, 20-year-old women like hanging out together yeah. with deep respect and cultural connection, you know. And um, it was funny because I was playing the baron. and it, it's a relatively easy instrument to play, forgive me, baron players, but it is in the sense of you're feeling it, you know, whereas uh, other instruments, the pipes especially, you've got to engage your brain quite a lot. Whereas your baron, you just switch your brain off and feel it. So actually, I've had more sort of transcendental otherworldly, you know, experiences drumming and playing bear and then I have piping because the piping, I'm just a bit more cerebral with it, you know. So that night, the pub closed at midnight and Frankie said, stick around. Okay, and they kicked out the whistle player. They really hated the whistle player, Irish fella. They were taking the piss out of him all night. Yeah, you got a kid's instrument. 
I was really shocked at that. I think they just wow. didn't like him. Yeah. He tried to sing in English as well, and that did not go down well. He didn't sing in English. You speak English there, but you couldn't sing in English. So the real session started at midnight. And it was, it was just really something else, you know. And um, I just experienced something very beautiful that night in lots of ways, the generosity of the people mm-hmm. who'd grown up with the tradition. Um, the, the witnessing of that cross-generational teaching and the real pride, that ownership and pride of this is our music, this is our culture. You're very welcome to join in. You know, in fact, you know, we'd love to make you Irish. Your name's Sean, you know, <laughs> but this is ours. And, you know, that it was really, really incredible and it was to come out into Galway at five six in the morning and I, w- I thought it'd be empty the whole town's still partying yeah. this is great <laughs> Sean can we have a tune and then of a whole swag of things I still need to talk to you about yep yeah okay so let's see what the reeds have been doing while we've been <laughs> we've been having that discussion
Uh, thanks, Sean. So what were those um, tunes you just played? Um, well, a quick little blast at my attempt at Colonel Fraser. Um, I like to play it in a four-part version. For those who are into the technical stuff, it's often as a five-part tune. But the third part, I kind of think it's just it's just a bit repetitive, and I just don't like playing it. And Leo Rouson played it as a four-part, so if Leo did it, I can get away with that. <laughs> Never play it like him, right? But it's, it's a great tune, and Colonel Fraser, by all accounts, was, was an English landlord, so he was a colonial thief, really. But apparently he's got a nice one and he would patronize all sorts of local artists and musicians. And in fact, it was such a, a lovely colonial thief, they wrote a tune in his honor. So yeah. there you go. And the first one, the piper, whose name I forget, who was on your show a few weeks ago. Uh, Jack Brennan. Jack, who I adored his, his music. Um, fascinating story as well. Yeah, he played the slow air of that tune, The Blackbird. And it's a, it's a set dance, you know, so you get people dancing to that. And they tend to have it much slower. You know, that the world of Irish dancing in that commercial competition world, it's really separate from the music now. We can talk about that maybe another time. But, you know, they wouldn't dance to it at that speed, you know. But um, that tune, when I first heard it, in fact, the Leo Ralston version was the first time I'd heard it. He recorded it in London. And I thought, oh, yeah, it sounds just like a blackbird. You, know, like you can hear the blackbird hopping around, and that's my imagination. And actually, it's apparently nothing to do with that. And you look, looking into this tune, apparently the blackbird was um, a nickname for James I. And it was an old Jacobite song, really? apparently, from the early 18th century. So it's one of those ancient, ancient airs. And that's had lots of meanings mm -hmm. and you know one of the ones that's known is this old Jacobite song and it yet yeah, passed into traditional musicians to play it as a tune and a particularly like a showy piece for pipers and fiddlers throughout Ireland. Yeah. And is there any particular reason why you you've again decided to go with those few or is it just they're, they're red hot? <laughs> well I just yeah I love playing them I mean the Blackbirds I think it might be my favorite tune and, you know, I think I murder it, really, compared to a good player, but I love playing it. And then Colonel Fraser, yeah, it's just really fun, fun tune to play. You know, it's just one of those having it piping reels. And first time I heard Finbar Fury play that, I was like, wow, you know, I want to learn that tune. So you grew up, grew up in Manchester, or are you from Liverpool? Did I get that right or wrong? My family's Liverpool. My dad's family's Liverpool. So they all came from Ireland at some point. You know, but it was not like my granddad was Irish or anything, but Lallys and Sweeney's, you know. Mm. So they, they came from Ireland at some point and settled in Liverpool and Birkenhead, and I was born in Liverpool but grew up in Manchester, yeah. What was Manchester like to grow up in? Well, you know, that's the whole of the podcast, right? You know, I mean, what a fantastic, amazing city, you know, in, in so many ways. And I grew up in the suburbs, which, you know, you can lament and joke about, but it meant I was a bus ride away from incredible culture and a bus ride away from amazing countryside you know and some of that amazing culture you know still is amazing traditional Irish music and in fact a couple of years ago I read somewhere they thought Manchester had the best traditional Irish music in the world yeah, yeah. probably that's one person's opinion right but it shows it's a strong scene like, like London yeah well Manchester's one of those cities right and you pick a genre and Manchester's played its role within it really were you really into exploring Manchester and kind of extracting as much as you could from it when you were when you were living there? In terms of the traditional music, 
just life. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, since so many great gigs and so much good stuff there, for sure. But I didn't get into the traditional music. Really, st- I started learning it in my last year or so there and then, then moved on, yeah. Um, so let's go back. You were a few, um, before that set of tunes, we were, you were in Galway. It was 5 a.m. You know, <laughs> there's a long journey between <laughs> giving up the bar on and to getting you where you are now. What was that road like? Well, it's one of those like, happenstance things, you know, because funnily enough, I soon figured out quite early on that everyone thought Baron players were a bunch of chances. It's not like a drummer in a rock band where you're like really respected and certainly playing like thrash metal. You've got to be an athlete to play that stuff, all the double bass drumming and stuff. You know, like mm-hmm. Lars Ulrich and Metallica, he's, when they were a thrash band, yeah. he's one of the main guys, you know, or the Baron player. And also, you go into a session and there's one of a Baron player, you're like, oh shit. You know, because you have 10 fiddle mm-hmm. players, can't you? But you can't really have more than one Baron. So I thought, well, I want to join in. I want to do this thing. So eventually I got a fiddle. And there was a lovely couple in Lost Withiel in Cornwall, John and Francis Webb, who are professional musicians. And they were really big in the traditional Cornish music. And they'd built bagpipes, Cornish bagpipes, that were based upon carvings found in these ancient churches in Cornwall. And they did whole albums, of Cornish music and singing. It's really similar to the Breton tradition but it died out hundreds of years ago. And no one knows of how real it is. And, you know, but they, they, they speak the Cornish language and play the tunes, but they do a lot of Irish stuff. And Francis did me some um, fiddle lessons and lent me the Matt Cranich fiddle book, the Orange Fiddle Book, which is, is a remarkable resource for learning fiddle, I think, if you've not got a good teacher, or as well as. And, uh, you know, I knocked out the Connickman's Rambles and a few tunes like that on the fiddle. Um, but I didn't have time, you know, I worked, and I didn't have time for an hour a day Baron and an hour and play fiddle. And I thought, I prefer the Baron, I'm going to stick with the Baron, no matter what. Yeah. I just enjoyed it more, so the fiddle never took off. And so that was on loan anyway, so I didn't have to worry there. And then I contacted Hobgoblin Music, who were like a chain of music shops, because I was vegan at the time. And I was like, oh, goat skin on the bear, and it's kind of like the one thing I'm not that happy with. And they said, oh, you know, there's this guy called Brian Howard who makes low whistles, I'd heard of him. And he's been working with Remo to make a synthetic baron skin. You know, and Remo have got a world percussion series, you see, and none of it's animal skins because they want to sell it worldwide. And a bit like the reeds, animal skins are affected, yeah. So I contacted Brian about this... Um, this vegan baron, and he said, well, come, come and see, see one. And I'm in Sheffield, just down, around the corner from my parents, really. So, oh, wow, okay. So I got to Brian Howard's house, and wow, it's on Rock Street, which is <laughs> kind of cool, isn't it, for an instrument maker. Yeah. And here is this house full of instruments. So oh, here's some harps I've been making, and here's my low whistles, and here's my barons, and oh, here's my and pipes. And that's his big thing, he was a pipe maker, you see. And Brian, you know, strapped on these peeps, pipes and started packing out the tunes. I thought, well, I've always loved the pipes. And they've got this mystique about them, haven't they? All these stories about them, you know, 21 years and all that. And I was like, oh, well. And I, I'd seen pipers around, you know, um, as it needed to be in years. And I was kind of like, well, they've got 10 fingers and 10 toes and they're not cyborgs. I, I could do that, you know, I yeah. could do that, I reckon. 
So when, you know, Brian had his pipes, he said, you know, I've not got a 10-year waiting list. He goes, you want a set, you can buy a set. You know, he had like a little production line going. I went, all right. I got myself a practice set of pipes. See, that blows me away. I would love to, I would love to buy a set of pipes, but it's kind of like, I feel with pipes that there is, you, you need a shaman to, t- to kind of take you on the journey because it seems to me that there's so much to know before you even begin to learn. Like even like the reeds at the beginning of the, um, the podcast and we were getting them in tune, I wouldn't, I couldn't really, I could hear some of, like some of the more obvious ones, but how do you even b- begin to unpack this world of potential things that might not be right? Do, do you really need someone to guide you th- from day one? I think first of all, you need a good set of pipes. It's the most important thing. And I was very fortunate as in Brian's pipes are exceptional. Now they are real pipes. They have, you know, natural reeds. They're not immune to moving with temperature and humidity like you saw, but they're a lot more stable than some. And they're a lot better made than some. You know, luckily there's a lot of great pipes out there now. And the Pia Breland that you talked about with Jack, you know, started a pipe making school and they do reed making videos and DVDs. You can Skype stuff now. So the amount of good quality instruments being made now is very large, but the amount of very poor instruments out there is still quite large. And uh, just been on the road in New Zealand, and we popped into Alistair's Music in Wellington, which is kind of famous. And what he does is he, he's a lovely guy, Scottish fella, used to make the Highland pipes. And he runs this really cool little music shop. It's where you go to buy a banjo in, in, in New Zealand, yeah. you know, or a mandolin or something. And he does little videos. So, in fact, me and my son knocked out a few tunes. And you go into Alistair's Music Facebook, and there we are, playing some tunes. And he said, oh, I've got, I've got a practice set of villain pipes out the back. Um, I can't make them work. Can you have a look? And I was thinking... Uh, you know, yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he got this set of pipes out, and um, they're from an Aussie maker. He didn't know who'd made them. And they were literally unplayable. You know, I mean, the actual craftsmanship was quite basic, but sounds, the bag wasn't leaking or anything, which you see. But the reed just wasn't working mm-hmm. at all. It didn't play in tune. It, it, you couldn't really get the notes out of it. So I knew that, look, I said, look, you just need a good reed. Find the maker and, and set, ask the maker to send a read or send him the chanter or get a good read maker in Australia to get a read sorted for you. That's all it is, you see. Um, but someone could have gone in, and in fact I saw on the Wellington Irish Sessions Facebook page yesterday, someone said, oh, there's a set of Ellen Pipes in Alistair's, thousand books. So some poor Kiwi could go in, lay out a thousand dollars on a, a literally unplayable instrument. And it doesn't matter what books or videos or DVDs or whatever, there's no way they're going to get started. It's like if you look at a modern car, are you going to fix that? Yeah. And the, the Ellen Pipes, it's like you do need that Reed Shaman. And I was very, very fortunate, as in Brian Howard was my you know, shaman for the, the pipes. He'd made his instrument, he was going to support that instrument, he lived near my parents, even though I was, wasn't that close. I could always pop in and visit him. And very early on, um, I joined the Pia Breland immediately. Um, I didn't join Coltus immediately. I was at first with Coltus. I was like, who are these people in funny costumes? 
I didn't I didn't know about it, you see, because I wasn't from the tradition. And now my son has been through the cultus through. Um, the, he started off playing whistle with the North London cultus when he was five, and like getting into that world, it was like, oh, that's what these guys do. How how amazing. What What do you mean? Can you break that down? So cultus Kiltori Aaron were, were formed in 1950, I think, um, to to support and teach and promote traditional Irish music, and they've been breathtakingly successful at that. Um, in many ways, um, but, but what was the then the North London oh, so the, the moment that that kind of this is what it's all about for you, for your young lad? What what was that like? Well, I suppose because I'd not really been exposed to that cultist world, which is about teaching youth and about you know the competitions and the flowers and stuff. Often because you know I was an adult learning the instruments and, and that, and just wasn't really involved in that world and. I'd written to them in these pre-internet days and said, what are you all about? Because people raved about them. And yeah, they sent me a brochure of people in funny costumes on tour. And I was like, this is folklore. It looked like Soviet-era folklore, <laughs> you know, which, of course, they're not that. It's just that's what it looked like. Whereas Napier Breelan, they sent me, you know, it's all through the post, you know, in those days. They sent me this big A4 cardboard folder. And on the front of it was Johnny Doran, still my greatest musical hero. And there's Johnny Doran in front of his horse-drawn caravan with Pat Cash and a dog. And it's like, here's the Ellen Pipes. Oh, the cool that. guys have got these, you know. So I joined the Pia Breelan immediately, and uh, they send out a little um, periodical called Ampia and learned so much just from all the little snippets in there. And um, I've completely lost the track of where we were going with that. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned the branding and that messaging from 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 girl. When I saw Jack's T-shirt, I went on to Bribril <laughs> and bought a T-shirt. So I think I'm gonna buy the T-shirt first and maybe okay. get a set oh, later. Mentorship, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It's to do with mentorship and learning and everything. But I can't quite. I've lost myself there. But what I know, I know. I know what it was, right? So I was reading Anpiabri, and pipers have their own festivals um, called Tinol, okay? And the Tinol is as much about getting your pipes fixed as anything, really, yeah? And I was reading about Tinol called Easter Snow. I don't know if it still happens. It was in the Alps in France. And Sean Potts, uh, Sean Og, as they called him then, was teaching at this festival. And he's like, look, okay, music's great and piping's great but bloody hell do you really want to do eight hours a day and of course all of us are yeah (laughs) but he was like look i don't so this tinol is amazing because i can go skiing for a few hours and then i can do pipes and i kind of thought that's a good idea and i lived on a narrow boat for 12 years you know and i was living on a boat at the time and i thought i could do a a narrow boat holiday with an ill and piping tinol yeah. yeah. So and so that was the floating tinol, which ran for I think five or six years. And what I did is I hired a big seventy-foot narrowboat in Oxford, where we based at the time. And I got these experts like uh, the, the Reed Shaman, as he's called, Alan Burton, Brian Howard, pipe maker and yeah. raconteur, you know, extraordinaire. You should get Brian on your show, I think. Um, we had the Ricard over from Dublin one time, incredible piper, an amazing gentleman. And what we used to do is we would, we'd offer it as a holiday. So we'd give you all your food, we'd take you up and down the River Thames, and you have your lessons as you're cruising up the Thames, right? It, rural, beautiful. But when you're really winding you up, like, I can't get that triplet right, come and drive the boat. <laughs> you know, come and throw some ropes at the lock, come and just chill out, mm. you know. 
Um, and then we'd stop at a different pub each night and have a session. And I'd publicise it as much as I could to get the local musicians out to join us, you know, because Oxford's got a great music scene, lots of good traditional music going on there. And then we'd finish off in Oxford with a session and a concert, you know, with the teachers. Mm. So Brian would, would be down every year getting people's pipes fixed and, you know, and it was really great. A lot of people started to learn the pipes at that festival. We had, we had people from Israel, America, Austria, all over the world. They'd come to this experience because it was like, wow, this is fun. We drive a boat, we learn pipes, and they've got a helping hand as well, which is, you do need that, yeah. I think. What a brilliant idea. Yeah, you've got me thinking of that chef, I know I can't remember his name. He does the, uh, the trips along the canals, and I've always loved the idea of doing a canal holiday, but it would be the boredom, which would be the... Uh, the downside you do something like that what a cracker of an idea Sean would you mind could we have a, another tune and yeah. we'll crack on yeah. um, do you have one in mind that you'd like to to do yeah you know what and, and that, this is what I mean by about learning the tradition and I know not everyone's into this but I like to know where the tunes come from you know and um, why is it called that name and who wrote it and what's the story you know and I, you don't have to do that, but you know, sometimes you hear people knocking out the tunes, they don't even know the name. It's like, come on, you know, at least know the name. And uh, if you look at the old Leo Rousam albums, every single tune, Leo's like, here's this tune, this is what it means, this is where it's from. And for me, it really adds richness to the music. You know, when he talks about Maid Behind the Bar, he plays it in four parts. You know, what, part one, the lad's chatting her up. You know, part three, she's throwing stuff out. In part four, it's harmony. You see, so there's so much meaning hidden away often in these tunes, and maybe each person telling you that is making it up. But there's a, a jig I'm going to do called Stacia Donnelly, which again I first heard from Mick O'Brien. And it's quite a well-known tune. You play a session, lots of people join in, but no one really thinks about it, you know, who's that? And I was just reading a few tunes by Reg Hall, which is very rigorously researched, breathtaking book, you know, quite opinionated as well, but all about traditional music in London, Irish traditional music in London, which you could do a million podcasts on in itself. And he talks about um, Jimmy Power, this wonderful fiddle player. And Jimmy um, spent a long time living in London, and it's, it's got a biography of him. And his father died when he was young, his mother remarried, and he was brought up by his grandmother, who was Stacia Donnelly. And on, on his recordings, there's, there's the tune, Stacia Donnelly. So that was just so nice mm. to get the connection. And it was also lovely because he was, he, he was based in London for so many years and part of that scene, that post-war London scene, which you know has been so influential for so many players and that in a small way I dropped into living on the boats in London. And, you know, I say my son started off learning with the North London cultists, and there it is, it's the living tradition. So I'm going to play that tune, maybe into something else, I'm not, not sure. Let's see.
So you mentioned your your son plays fiddle at the at the is it fiddly place? Yeah. Yeah. So he's twelve. Is that right? Mm-hmm. How long has he been playing fiddle, and what was what's his um, what's his journey? So he started in the cultus, mm-hmm. but he where, where is he at at the moment? So yeah, so we I say we were based around London for a long time because we lived like water gypsies, really on the the waterways. We moved around a lot. But up and down the Thames, so Oxford and London were kind of the home bases. And then when my son was born and me and my wife were like, oh, shit's getting real. You know, we decided to start a company, start a business, and London's the obvious place. So we really settled up there and ended up with a mooring in King's Cross. And funnily enough, I didn't really play much music for all my time in London because of new baby, work, running a business. And it's really ironic because the music scene there is so incredible. And I was in King's Cross, so you've got King's Cross, Holloway, Islington, Camden. Is it still so as red hot as it as it was? It's so red hot. Really? It's so red hot. And in fact, there's still that lineage, you know, right back to the post-war players and lots of new people coming over from Ireland. So the depth and breadth of the tradition is incredible. And I, I did go to the London Ill and Pipers Club for my first time in London, around about 2002. And, um, you know, that's an incredible resource as well. And I guess you don't really know how lucky you are and, until you go somewhere like New Zealand or Australia where that, you know, that isn't there. You know, the, the London well, you, Irish. You'll enjoy these. Only when I was in Ireland in August, I was in Betty's Town. I'm always in Betty's Town. And it wasn't until you sent me the Pipriolan documentary that I read that first Pipriolan flower. It was held in Betty's Town. I was in the Neptune Hotel. And I'm just kind of... And I always complained there was no real music around Drogheda when I was growing up. You, you, you don't know unless you look, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, and I guess, you know, you could live on the Holloway Road and not know about these kicking sessions and then the incredible history. You know, just the Holloway Road in London has got such a rich history. You know, mm. Willie Clancy playing in the pubs and, you know, these amazing musicians. So it was really nice for, yeah, when my son was five... It was like, well, yeah, go to the cultists and, and start learning whistle, you know. So I wasn't really playing, but my son could start on the whistle. And there's this wonderful woman called Kathy Walton who was teaching that class. She's an Aussie, actually, um, who sort of goes between Australia and Ireland. And the whole thing's really run by Karen Ryan, who's from a band called The London Lasses. And those, those two women, uh, with, with lots of other support and help, do the teaching this North London cultist branch and what was amazing is as a five-year-old you know my son who's heard me play and my mates play could learn a few tunes with some new friends and then they could see the seven-year-olds who were like pretty good and then they see the 14 15 year olds who better than I'll ever be like ever and they'd have like little sessions you know, so even though if, if they could only join in on a few tunes, the little kids, they could see the older ones and go, oh, I could do that. Mm-hmm. And we learn this music to join in yeah. and to be part of something. And in fact, the the London cultists, that, that London cultist branch, what they do every year for St. Patrick's Day is a parade right through, through London and end up at Trafalgar Square. And they also go around a load of the local schools saying, well, this is our music, this is our tradition. You know, so it, it, it's a way of having a cultural identity and meaning in the, a world where mm-hmm. those things may be lacking for a lot of people. So it's really rich, really beautiful. 
and I think it was a good grounding for him. And they have flair as well, they have competitions, which might seem a bit weird if you're from not that world. Like surely music's the opposite of competition. But what I saw is how it inspired the kids. You know, they actually made them practice. And you go to these little flower, like in this little pool in Tottenham, Irish centre in Tottenham or something, and it's like, remember that programme Fame? Mm. It's like that for traditional music. Yeah. You know, every room's full of children playing traditional music and, you know, the harpist underneath the stairs tuning the harp and the one piper with lots of medals because there's no other pipers, you know. Yeah. So that was, I think, really inspiring. And like a lot of people, after a few years, he said, oh, I want to learn something else, and he chose to fiddle. Just one last question in regards to you moving possibly to New Zealand. Mm. How do you, what role will the music play for you and and for your son? But is is it will will the same opportunities be available there, or is that something that you just plan to work on, or is it you don't know yet? Oh, they definitely won't be. I mean, as I say, you don't know what you've got, do you? You don't appreciate things until either they're not there or they may not be there. So, while growing up in in England isn't like growing up in Ireland in any sense of the word in terms of the the culture and everything. You've got a tremendous amount there. I mean, even that first tin oil in the Pier Real on, on that article, um, Peter Brown says, well, it was all the best pipers from Ireland and Britain, didn't mm-hmm. he? He did. You know, and like I said, in Reg Hall's book, he talks about um, Ireland pipers in the 18th century in London. And they're not all people born. I always thought, the Irish musicians in London were people like Jimmy Power who were born in Ireland and came over to work and played, right? There's people in London playing the Union Pipes, as they were called then, whose grandparents had been born in Ireland. Yeah. But they'd carried on a cultural tradition, you know, as a sense of, of identity and, and sort of nation, national identity. And I thought that was incredible. I never knew that. Mm. So to go to New Zealand where... It's also new, you know, there's, well, the white Western culture, because you've got the Maori there who've got this ancient, beautiful, powerful, earth-based tradition. And in fact, we met this um, Maori guy called Ash down in Taranaki in the last week we were there. And he introduced himself to my son. He was a musician, he's a professional musician, Ash. And he said to my son, I'm going to show you how to greet people in the Maori way. And he says, we touch foreheads, we touch our noses. We're the only people in the world who greet each other by our noses. And we exchange breath. And we exchange our souls with one another. And then kiora, you know, peace. And it was like, wow. Isn't that amazing? You know, so there's deep, obviously, there's deep culture in New Zealand. But you can miss that. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can get into Ford Rangers and tattoos and, you know, very Americanized culture in some respects. People want to be in Los Angeles or something, I guess. But what we found, we were incredibly lucky, is we went to some sessions in Auckland. And one of them in particular in the Clare Inn in Auckland, in Mount Albert, it was so good. There was three Malaysian brothers, the Chia brothers, playing traditional Irish music like, like they were the pure drop. I mean, how weird is that? Fantastic. How weird is that? So it's there. There's not much of it. And those guys invited us, um, this, uh, a woman called Cara Dillon, not Cara Dillon, she's famous, isn't she? Cara someone, Cara Dixon, sorry Cara if you're listening. 
Um, she invited us to this uh, Gale Tart, this pan-Celtic festival in the Northlands, you know. And we went up there, and it was a whole week of Scottish, Breton, Irish, Welsh culture, music, etc. And, yeah, they got things wrong, I think, like teaching the kids. They were well off the mark. There was no kids playing music. Like, it was the odd. I think there was one Highland Piper. But the kid, it wasn't like being at Flower and Island. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're so not quite getting there. But there were young people like the Cheer family. You know, they're in their 20s, they're all playing One Sister, Three Brothers. And so there was people in their 20s who'd grown up with that festival. But it was, you know, there was one of the Piper, Sean Connolly from Dublin, was there. He's a really good Piper. He's far better than me. You should get him on your podcast. He's on Wahiki Island. Um, so there's enough. And in fact, Sean Connolly said to me, he said, well, if you come here, Sean, it won't be the same. But he said, you don't need all the oxygen in the earth to breathe. You need just enough. And I think in, in New Zealand, I'll find just enough. And you know what? They're going to get the gift of you too, which is a really nice thing. That's new, fresh blood, fresh play, and you're, you're a great resource. Listen, Sean, thank you so much for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. Do you reckon we could have one last tune? I think so, yeah. Let's give Thanks, it a mate. Okay. Thank you so much, Sean. That was great. And uh, I really appreciate our uh, Lost in Translation. Uh, thank you for being my Scarlet Johansson. Good, good stuff. Um, uh, good stuff on um, uh, dealing with the temperamental reads and the humidity oh. and the air conditioning and, uh, you know, all sorts. I can't imagine. It makes it makes playing the tin whistle seem easy. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't make for a good podcasting, but the, let's say, hour before we, we actually got recording, I learned a lot about the different workings of the of the pipes <laughs> it's incredible the amount of technicalities that can go wrong it's just there's a minefield there yeah, so yeah. i think i've i'm a much wiser man about the pipes than yeah. i was last week great stuff um thanks everybody uh, who shared the podcast on facebook um we're relying on you to help spread in the word so uh keep doing that and uh tell yeah. your mate about it yeah have and a then, pint and say hey 
you heard these fellas they're not much crack but they've good guests <laughs> yeah that's about the height of it yeah. alright on that note good luck away we go see ya hi my name is Jack Crow. please become a good subscriber to the podcast thank you